do that, though, I'm afraid. All right, will you turn with me again to Esther chapter 6, end of Esther, chapter 6, verse 14, is the last verse, chapter 6, and then we'll read chapter 7. We've been considering together this magnificent, glorious doctrine of the providence of God, and I want to draw your attention to what I've called providential disaster, providential demise. So, chapter 6, verse 14, this really is the introduction to chapter 7. So, verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I know you've all been waiting for this passage. It's been a long time. So, as I said, I've entitled this uh, section... Uh, providential disaster. Uh, the interesting thing about disasters, which we have gone through as a state uh, with Hurricane Egan, Ian, is that the, uh, the thing about disasters, they're always, and this is what we need to remember as a Christian, they're always providential. That's the thing about disaster. It's always, as far as God is concerned, providential. Disasters fall in the providence of God within the definition of providence as we understand it. God's upholding, God's directing, God's governing, God's disposing of all creatures. 
and of all things from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, that's how the confessions of faith uh, give us in describing uh, providence, that that's what providence is. It is God upholding. Uh, that is God's maintaining, right? Or sustaining of all things. It is God directing. God has an end. God has a purpose. Everything goes towards the end for which God has determined it. And God disposes. He, he just ensures that all the events necessary to the fulfillment of the end, of the purpose, weave together in perfect harmony and perfect union from God's perspective. You read the Confessions of Faith, which are wonderful to read. They make this sta statement about the actions of God, that the actions of God is, number one, always according to God's infallible foreknowledge. Uh, the foreordination of God is that which has ordained all things to fall out perfectly as God has designed them or intended them to fall out. And when it says it's according to the immutable foreknowledge of God, it means the unchangeable foreknowledge of God. That God has put something into place, uh, it will achieve its end, cannot do otherwise. It's unchangeable because the nature of God and the Word of God is unchangeable. God cannot lie. That's the first thing, according to the immutable foreknowledge of God. Not only that, but according to His immutable counsel. God has determined in and of Himself, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that this is the beginning to the end. And all events, all situations, all of your life, all the events of it, they work together towards that end that God has determined. What He has in the counsel of His will decided and determined to accomplish. And number three, which is perhaps the most beautiful part, it is always to the praise of His glory. That whatever God does, He always does for His glory. He doesn't do it for anything else. Included within His glory is His magnificent wisdom and power and justice and infinite goodness and mercy. And so when we consider together, <coughs> excuse me, the providential disaster that we can see in this very passage, behind that is the infinite wisdom and goodness and justice of God. In fact, in all the events of humanity, all decisions that are ever made, from the very beginning until tonight, all of them according to the purpose of God by His infallible, immutable knowledge and wisdom and for His glory. But that's not all the confession says. Sometimes you have to read what's said within the lines of some sweeping statements of theology. So, for example, the... Confession gives a very profound line, and it says this, to the end, for the which, it's an interesting, it's old English that, right? To the end, for the which, the which, meaning the purpose, they were created. For the end, for which, leave out the the, they were created. God's intended end. So, between thinking about the foreknowledge of God, and the counsel of God, and the glory of God, which is just the simple display of His wisdom and His goodness and His justice and all of these things sandwiched in there in those descriptions is the end, the purpose for which God has intended all things for all creatures and even for His people, for ourselves. And that's why we say 
that any disaster and all disasters are always providential. Never outside the intended purpose and end of God. They have an end, and that end, by the way, from our perspective, may have good consequences and bad consequences. And as far as we are concerned, as God's people, that which is described often as evil or bad is actually for our good. And it really takes faith to grasp that truth. That something that is bad, something that is evil, falling within the sovereign purposes of God, actually is for your good, for my good. How do I know that? Because Paul says what he says in Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those or to them who are called according to his purpose. You believe that? See, that's what faith does. It latches on to this tremendous truth. Notice, all things work together for good to those who love God. All things work together for the people of God, for the children of God. So what seems to be disastrous from one perspective, as far as God is concerned and His people, it always turns out for our good, because it was ordained by God for our good, for His glory. The supreme example of that is the cross, isn't it? I mean, there is the wickedness of humanity. There is the vileness of humanity. A number of peoples come together, Jews, Gentiles, rulers of the nations. We just read Psalm 2, why do the, the nations rage? All of those things coming together at the cross, bringing about the death of Jesus, yet we all know that the death of Jesus is no accident, of course, because there are no accidents. It's the purpose of God. And the intended result of the death of Jesus is our redemption, therefore it's good because it comes from the hand of God. So that which reveals to us the evil of humanity on display in all of its terribleness actually turns out and proves to be something so wonderful, so good, the forgiveness of God in the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should ask ourselves every day, you go to work, <coughs> you're about your business, you should ask yourself in every circumstance, whether you stay at home as a mom, whether you have no job, whether you do have a job, whatever it is, you should ask yourself in every circumstance, what is the end that God has determined? I know that if I think like that, the first thing I should remind myself is that it's for the glory of God that I live, right? Whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, do it all for the glory of God. So a very fundamental thing like eating your breakfast tomorrow, or perhaps let's bring it closer to home, eating your supper tonight, okay, is something that we give glory to God for in the eating and in the drinking. So what end has God determined it's always for our good, no matter what it is. It's always for our good. Now, frankly, it's certainly not easy to live like that. Abraham had to learn how to live like that. So did Jacob have to learn. The Old Testament saints, I mean, read Hebrews 11, right? By faith, by faith. It's only by faith that you can live. This is where faith exhibits itself in the realities of life, in the consequences of life, in the bad decisions you may make and then have to rectify or correct them, all within the providential dealings of God. Faith latches hold of God. It must latch hold of God. 
Now you probably think like I would think that we can ask God what his end is. And we can say in one sense, well the end is the glory of God and how God gets there is what God has determined. And that will raise questions in your mind. Usually we might ask that question uh, in times of disaster. What are you doing, Lord? Or things go hard for you, things go bad for you, at least it seems like that. You ask that question of God, what are you doing, Lord? But we never seem to ask that question when things go well for us. Then it's almost as if we just expect them to continue as they do, but that's not life. And faith really is exhibited when trials, when hardships, when difficulties come upon us. So disasters in life are therefore always providential, always good. Whether those disasters are averted or whether you experience them, they're always providential and they're always good for us. Now that teaches us two things, right? First thing it teaches you is that you should always look to God. That's number one. And the second thing is you should always live for God. So we look to God and we live for God in all of these circumstances that we experience. You know how often you read uh, in the Old Testament about lifting up your eyes, right? To see God. To see what God has done. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence, that's King James, right? Cometh my help. Right? That's what we do. We lift up our eyes to see where is God and what is God doing. And that phrase occurs in the Old Testament. What does it mean? simply means actually see what God has done and don't let it pass you by. So look with your eyes and live with your life in every circumstance, in the goodness of God, what God has ultimately decreed, which you may not see at the time. But providence, remember, is always that which enables you to look back and see it was God who did that or God who did this. David said, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27. I believe that I shall look. That's faith, right? I believe that I shall look upon God in this experience that I'm going through, my life. That's what he says. Do you remember the bronze servant, uh, serpent in Numbers chapter 21? People had sinned against God, people of Israel. God told Moses, you know, make a bronze serpent and... Have Aaron go through the camp and hold it up, and anybody who looks lives, right? And that's what he did, of course, to avert the disaster that God had decreed upon the people. But we all know that Numbers 21, the making of the bronze serpent, though it is historically for Israel in its context, yet it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. You ask yourself the question, well, what does that really mean? To believe in the Son of God, or the Son of Man. Well, to believe in Jesus is to look upon Jesus, to trust Jesus. To engage in faith. The result of believing always in the Bible is eternal life. Always is eternal life. In other words, if you look to the Son of Man who is lifted up, you live. So notice 
in every circumstance I must look to the Lord, and in every circumstances I must live unto the Lord. So the occurrence or the aversion of all disasters in life, my life, your life, is all within the providence of a good God. Providence, as you know, doesn't just operate by itself. Providence operates within what God has decreed. And that's a very big subject in and of itself. The decree of God, what God has determined. And what God has determined works itself out providentially. And so these events that we've been discovering or reading through in the book of Esther are providential events. And there's so many little... uh, language indicators in the text to direct us to providence. As you know, God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of praying. There's no mention of the temple in Jerusalem. Nothing. It's a historical account (coughs) of a people threatened by an evil enemy. And yet we all recognize when we read Esther, because it's in Scripture, of course, that it is inspired of God, and there we see the hand of God providentially working all things out for His glory and for the good of people. So here in Esther we have to say, as we come to chapter 7, we're in the eye of the storm. Okay? You remember back in chapter 5, Esther's first feast? Remember the book of Esther revolves around feasts, the feast of Xerxes, the feast of Esther, the feast of Esther, and the feast of Purim, which is still to come. And so now, Esther's first feast, chapter 5, and here in chapter 7, the second feast given by Esther. Because you remember, back in chapter 5, what is your request? What is your wish, Esther? It shall be given to you up to half my kingdom. And my request and my wish is that you come to the feast the next day. Second feast. Okay? And so this is what we discover here. Esther's purpose in her feasts is to avert disaster planned against her people by Haman. That's the purpose. We all know that. Haman has a plan, doesn't he? He spent a long time orchestrating that plan, developing that plan. He even looked to his idols and to his wise men, his astrologers, to get the right time when he could put into practice his plan against the Jews. Particularly, of course, he has the desire to destroy Mordecai, not just to destroy the Jews, but to destroy Mordecai. So remember chapter 6 last week? He had gone to the king to request Mordecai's death. But what happened? Instead we discovered that, that Xerxes could not sleep. Remember on that very night, the night of that feast, he could not sleep and uh, of course he, he called for all the books of, the, of remembrance, the chronicles, Uh, to be read to him. And in that book he learned that Mordecai had actually saved his life. And so Xerxes, because he's a Persian, desires to honor Mordecai. He wants to honor Mordecai because he suddenly discovers, well, what honor has been given to Mordecai? The answer was, no honor has been accorded with him. This goes back to chapter 2. And so because it was Persian practice to always give reward and to give honor, but in the providence of God, in chapter 2, Mordecai was overlooked. Now we see Mordecai receiving the honors and the rewards, the recognition that he deserved, because Xerxes cannot sleep in the night. 
And because he cannot sleep providentially, he asks without knowing why he asks these things in the plan of God for the book of the memorable deeds to be read to him. And wouldn't it so happen providentially that in that very book, the very place is a description of Mordecai saving his life. Such a big, big book to read from, right? And so providentially Xerxes, he formulates his plan. His plan is to reward Mordecai. Haman's plan is to destroy Mordecai. And both of those plans are converging together in the sovereign purposes of God. And at the very moment that Haman arrives in the court of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, King Xerxes has formulated his plan about rewarding Mordecai. And here you just see the clash of two purposes and two plans in the sovereign purposes of God. And Haman, of course, has arrived with his plan. But his plans are destroyed, aren't they? They're not even delayed, like put on the back burner. Well, let's talk about this, Haman. <laughs> no, they're just, they're finished. They're over. Because once Mordecai makes, uh, sorry, Xerxes makes the decision to honor Mordecai, to give him the recognition and the prestige that was due him for saving the king's life, how can Haman ever suggest, since he just arrived, to actually suggest that Mordecai be hanged on the gallows that he has built for him? Can't do that, right? So everything is switched in a moment. This is the, this is the beauty of the writer of Esther. He's able to engage with your emotions and to turn the tale or to turn the story about Esther and about Mordecai. And so as we read it, so that we grasp the significance that things are happening that are not in their hands, but in the hands of a sovereign God. So when you get to chapter 6, look at verse 13, right? His wife says to him, and his friends, and his wise men, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So, there's a good wife telling you you're done for, right? I mean, if, if, if this is what's happening, then it doesn't seem to be any good. It's an ominous demise that seems predicted for Haman right there. And these events that we're talking about, the, the fact that Xerxes cannot sleep, the fact that uh, Haman has to lead Mordecai, honoring him through the streets of Susa, the Persian capital, and then go home grieving that he had to exalt Mordecai in such a fashion, those events are situated between the first feast, chapter 5, and now this feast again in chapter 7. And notice verse 14 of chapter 6, right? The king's eunuchs arrive to escort Haman. He's still mourning, right? He's still trying to get over what had just happened to him. I had to lead Mordecai through the city proclaiming that this is the man the king delights to honor. Now, you know, back in chapter 5, verse 12, Haman actually considered the invitation by Esther as an honor accorded to him. Because only he and Xerxes get to go to the feast, right? But the events of chapter 6 have left him grieving, mourning at how, how did this turn about? I go there to, to, to get Mordecai hanged on my gallows and what happens? Xerxes exalts him. And so he has a wide range of emotions, I'm sure, as he's thinking about this and the fact that his wife has just told him and his wise men that doesn't look very good for you, Haman. 
And so as he's thinking like that, the king's eunuchs arrive to pick him up, take him to the feast. So I think when you, when you read the, the account on the surface, you see these things, right? The tides have changed for Haman's life. His downfall, predicted even by his wife Zeresh and his wise men, indicate that Haman has lost control. Now, at this point, you know, have to take note of the fact that neither Xerxes the king nor Haman, number two in the country, neither of them know that Esther is Jewish. Neither of them know that Esther is Jewish. And you notice in verse 4 of chapter 7, we have been sold, I and my people. I and my people. Now, They've been drinking wine, eating the feast, and that's over. And Xerxes comes back to Esther's request, right? So he initiates things. And what follows now in the account is tense and on a knife edge, really. Because you see, what Esther has to do is to accuse Haman without incriminating Xerxes in the process. There's a fine line to walk, right? So... We say that, I say that because it's the king who has given approval previously in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, for the plan of destroying these people that Haman has presented to him. So behind Haman stands Xerxes' authorization to destroy all the Jews. And he was, even though he was unaware that they were the Jews, they were just as Haman said in chapter 3, verse 8, a certain people are scattered abroad and dispersed among all your people, among all the provinces of the king. There's a people out there, Xerxes, and they don't take any cognizance of you or your laws. We should take them out. Good deal, Haman. Sign or signet ring. Stamp. That's what Xerxes did. That's what the king did at Haman's suggestion. So, Esther has to bring an accusation against Haman without bringing that up to Xerxes. Bringing to mind for Xerxes what he actually authorized. So notice, Xerxes again, he asks Esther, well, what, what is your wish, verse 2, right, number 1? What is your wish? And again, verse 2, number 2, what is your request? I mean, both of those are really the same thing, aren't they? And Esther replies in exactly the way Xerxes structures the questions. For instance, look at verse 3. She says, my wish is that my life be spared. Now, you know, I mean, if you're the king and this is your wife talking to you, the queen, it's like, hey, whoa, what are you talking about? Your life to be spared, right? My wish is that my life be spared. And then my request is that my people be spared. And Xerxes is probably thinking, what is that? What does this mean, Right? In other words, what Esther has done just by stating those wishes and requests the way she did is to wrap her life up in with her people. We are the same. I and my people are the same. We're one and the same. If I go down, they go down. If they go down, I go down. And so on. So now look at how she expands on that, right? Verse 4. This is her explanation. <clears throat> Number one, we have been sold. Number two, we are to be destroyed. Number three, we are to be killed. 
And number four, we are to be annihilated. Now, you notice the stress, right? Just sold, destroyed, killed, annihilated. What does that mean? It speaks of slavery, murder, and extermination. That's the plan against me, Xerxes, and against my people. That's what she's saying to him. By the way, those are <coughs> excuse me, the exact words that Haman used in chapter 3, verse 13. There are a people that need to be destroyed, that need to be killed, that need to be annihilated. And now Esther repeats those back to the king. You know what's interesting about this? Is that this is the same tactic that Nathan the prophet used against King David and his adultery with Bathsheba. It's exactly the same tactic. Remember how it's been a year. David's life is a mess. He even talks in the Psalms about how his bones are, are aching. Physically, he's affected by his sin against God because he has not received forgiveness from God. He hasn't confessed to God. And so Nathan, he has to go around David's built-in defense mechanism because that's what sin does, right? It prompts a built-in sin uh, mechanism that rejects accusation. And you might have experienced that yourself when you deny what is true of you, right? Because you have a built-in defense system. So what does he do? Well, he tells the story, right, about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man is just one little lamb, and the rich man has flocks, right? What he's trying to do is to arouse the indignation of King David. Because he says, you know, a man came to visit the rich man, and the rich man took the poor man's little lamb and ate it up for dinner. And you know, because David was a shepherd, that would enrage him. And that's exactly what, <laughs> that's the, the, it's like standard response, right? He just, he's enraged that somebody would steal one lamb from a poor man when he owns flocks and can take whatever he wants. So his indignation is arise, aroused at the violent injustice that was done to the poor man by the rich man. And... Nathan further suggests that justice needs to be done. And David demands that justice be done, right? And Nathan has done that all so that he can just get to the point and say, you're the man. You're the man, David. Isn't it a good thing that David acknowledges immediately his sin? It's tremendous, isn't it? Because, you know... Most of us would be just maybe backpedaling, deny, deny, deny. I mean, isn't that the strategy of people, right? When they're confronted with their sins today, deny. It's political labor. That's what people do out there in the political spectrum. They just deny, deny, deny the obvious truth. So what happens to Xerxes when Esther says, I have been sold to be killed? to be destroyed, to be annihilated, and my people. What does Xerxes do? Well, he erupts in anger, right? I mean, you're talking a Persian king, right? Yeah, now we've already seen some of the outbursts of King Xerxes, right? This is a Persian pagan. He is violent and he is deadly, right? You don't mess with the Persians. So he erupts in anger and he demands that she tell him, right, who possibly could have done such a thing. Now, it would appear that on the surface, Xerxes does not recognize the language 
that Esther put to him as the language of Haman in seeking the destruction of the Jews and of Mordecai. An instruction which he, by the way, had previously approved of. He's so enraged because someone has sought to destroy his queen. Okay? Which is what Esther has designed. Now just remember that the night before, the night before he has just read in the Chronicles, in the book of memorable deeds, that Mordecai saved his life. No Persian king, no Roman, no Greek, whenever they ruled, would ever gloss over any threat of assassination. Any threat to the throne is dealt with, right? There's no political process, just take him out and be done. Notice what Xerxes does in verse 5. Who is he? Where is he? Right? Who is he? And where is he who has done this? Now the Hebrew text, by the way, fires these things out. It's like a staccato. Coming at you, right? And Esther, in the Hebrew text, just comes straight back with the answer, right? Look at, look at verse 6. She says, as to the who, she says, a foe and an enemy. As to where is he, right here, this wicked Haman. Notice she says those things. Those are two responses, by the way, that drive Xerxes out into the garden. Right? The palace garden is right there. Out he goes because he's livid. He's enraged and he's in anger. He's probably trying to uh, come to some comprehension of it. But what's Haman's response? Ends of end of verse 6 is absolute terror, right? Because he sees that the king, his wrath is aroused against him. Now I think Xerxes is probably thinking about the dilemma that he might be in here. Okay, because he previously had approved of Haman's plan. Which you remember, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, can never be changed, never be altered. And so, it cannot just be undone. What has been decreed, that's his dilemma, out in the garden. And he's lost face in some sense. He rec I think he recognizes this because of his involvement. So there he is out in the garden and he's thinking and he's furious. But Haman, on the other hand, recognizing the king's wrath set against him, towards him, end of verse 6 and end of verse 7, right at that point he makes a disastrous move, doesn't he? He tries to intercede with Esther. Well, that makes sense to me, right? She made an accusation. You need to defend yourself. He tries to intercede with her, verse 8. Look at verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden. Well, he stayed, verse 7, to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Verse 8, when the king comes back in, Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. At the very moment, notice that Xerxes comes back. This is designed to get you to think about the providence of God, the working out of all things, right? The very moment Xerxes comes in, Haman is falling on the couch, which seems to Xerxes to mean that he's trying to assault the queen because she accused him. That's what he sees with his eyes as he comes in. It's obvious, right? Now, there's certain things in Persian harem protocols that have to be observed, right? So, must never forget that when you read the Old Testament, you read it in its cultural setting as well. This is the Persian kingdom and a Persian king. And things operate differently in Persia than they do in Israel. 
So the king has a harem, right? And Esther is part of the harem. She is the queen. And Persian protocol said that no man should ever be alone with a woman except the king. Only the king was permitted to be alone with a woman. What Haman should have done was to go out into the garden after Xerxes and try to talk to him. Whether that would have worked doesn't matter, but he should have done that, but he didn't. He stayed. And so that's why when he falls on the couch, it appears to be an assault upon Queen Esther. And that's the end, right? When the Jews were scattered after the first century, and you have this diaspora around, many of them lost the ability in the Hebrew language. And Aramaic tended to be the, the language that was commonly spoken. Uh, you find it at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrew and Aramaic, right? Uh, there is a Targum, a Targum of Esther, an Aramaic Targum that says that Esther, sorry, that Haman fell on Esther's couch because the angel Gabriel gave him a shove. Okay, so that's a loose understanding, isn't it, of what happened. We know what happened. We know that God is working all things out. And, and Targums, Targums are usually translations with interpretations written in them, Right? Well, the result of, of these events is Haman is done. Haman is finished. And his actions, Haman's actions, solve the dilemma for Xerxes, don't they? Because, oh, well, he's affronted the king, he's assaulted the queen, at least it appears that way, and he's broken po protocol. So there's, that's the end of Haman, determined by Xerxes. You notice verse 8. Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? He just has to ask that question. For the king's eunuchs, all right, and the assistance of the king to cover the face of Haman, now an enemy, shouldn't be seen, and he's taken out, removed. But it's not over because Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, right, says, you know, Haman built a gallows for Mordecai to hang Mordecai on it. Now you see, I think when Harbona says that, this is the beauty of Scripture. When he makes this, this suggestion to the king, Xerxes probably, at that very moment he hears that suggestion, makes a connection between the attempted assassination on his own life that was uncovered by Mordecai back in chapter 2, and Haman's desire to destroy Mordecai, he connects them together. Why would you do that? And I think what, what uh, Xerxes sees is that, ha, huh, you tried to take me out, Haman. Now you know to be hanged on a gallows in Persia is not a pleasant experience because it's really by impaling. Okay? So it's a horrific way to die. And that's how Haman dies. Horrible, violent. The Bible says that once that was done, the anger of Xerxes is assuaged. He's satisfied, right? Verse 10. All right, so that's the account. Let me make some observations. First of all, historical observations. Esther has finally achieved what King Saul failed to achieve, right? 
Yeah, you recall 1 Samuel chapter 15, God said to sing Saul, you go and you destroy all the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was Agag, and Haman is an Agagite. So we make the connection between Haman and the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel, and King Saul, of course, failed to accomplish that. He saved Agag. Samuel had to come and hack Agag to pieces, right? Because God's command was destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. So Esther has finally achieved what her predecessor, her forefather, her ancestor, King Saul, failed to do. She has destroyed the Agagite, the Amalekite. We should see that, by the way, in the light of Mordecai's words. If you go back to chapter 4 and look at verse 13 and 14. Mordecai told the eunuchs to reply, that's Hathak, to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself, this is chapter 4.13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's how we should see all of this. Right? Historically, working out, God's providence never, never neglecting supposed unfinished business. Now this is the great lesson for us, right? Because I think many times we have unfinished business with God. But God never ignores unfinished business with us. Or with anything. He always acts on behalf of His people. He always acts for our good. He always acts for His glory. And providence, the wonderful thing about the providence of God is it never ignores the promises of God. We must also see that I think Esther is not to be seen as the ideal Christian woman. Okay? I think many commentators make the mistake that Esther is this, this virtuous woman. She's not that. Okay? We've already determined that. She gave herself to the king. She could have resisted. She refused. She didn't do that. She, she engages in things for her own ends, it would appear. Many of those kinds of things. So I don't think we, uh, any woman should look to Esther as a, the ideal model for womanhood or an ideal Christian woman. So it's not an example to be directly emulated. That's not what we're talking about. That's historically, right? All right, what about theologically? Second, was Haman's demise justified? That's a good question, I think. Because you should remember that the irony of Haman's downfall, on the one hand, is he got what he deserved, that's true, but on the other hand, he has not actually yet committed any crime. He has not actually yet committed a crime. He did not plot to overthrow Xerxes. He did not attempt to molest Esther. Yet the author, the author does not let you think otherwise, right? You just can't read it without thinking those things. He doesn't allow you and me to feel any sympathy for Haman, the writer of Scripture. We are simply shown that the pride and the vanity of Haman leads to his downfall. And that's the truth. Here's what Josephus says, the Jewish historian. He says, I admire God. 
in this account of Esther and Haman because God is so disposed, uh, so disposed that Haman should undergo the very same punishment which he had contrived for someone else. And so, Josephus says, we should learn this lesson that what mischiefs anyone prepares against somebody else without knowing it, he has first contrived it against himself. You know, some people say what goes around comes around, right? You do that, it's going to come back to you. Um, Last week I talked about the doctrine of the vengeance of God. Here is the doctrine of divine justice, divine vengeance. The Bible teaches vengeance only belongs to the Lord, not to the Christian, right? Romans chapter 12. Leave it to God. Leave any vengeance that you may have, any revenge. In fact, revenge should not be in your heart. What should be is that you feed your enemy and you take care of him. Because Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. God has a plan for judgment. God has a plan for punishment. As you know, as Christians, because you're solid, good Christians, there are present temporal judgments that people experience, but there is eternal judgment that people will experience. By present temporal judgment, things go against people. Things don't work out. All sin, all evil, will one day experience the vengeance of God, the justice of God. So much so that God will be seen in absolute glory in His justice. When God sends people to the horrible hell that God made for them, God will be glorious. It's hard to comprehend that, isn't it? But God doesn't ask us to comprehend that. God simply just says, believe that this is the end of the wicked for the singular purpose that we might heed the call ourselves not to be wicked. For that is what awaits the unrighteous and the unbeliever. Sin and evil are always self-deceiving, right? I mean, Haman really believed himself. He's vain, he's proud, he believed he could get away with all of his actions. But with all the power of Persia at his disposal, with all of the resources, he could not begin even to thwart the providence of God. So, an Adolf Hitler can be raised up and bring about absolute evil and he cannot even begin to thwart the purpose of God. Not even begin. Not even get on the page. Not even out of the starting blocks thwarting the purpose of God. Now in the horrible events of life like that, how do you see God? Where is God? When everything is stripped away from you, That's when we ask the question, where is God? That's the life of Job, isn't it? When all is stripped away from him. And that's really what Satan wanted to expose Job to. You see, God, you've put a hedge around him. You always protect him. I can never get at him. You just remove that hedge and we'll see what Job will do. And Satan, of course, didn't really know Job at all, right? Because as far as God was concerned, have you considered my servant Job that there's not a man like him on the face of the earth, upright and blameless? Ah, you've protected him, God. You care for him. Remove the hedge, okay? Okay, now, you know, Satan should have been wise enough when God said, okay, 
I'll take away the hedge to realize that's still not going to work. And what happened? All of his possessions, gone. All of his children, sons and daughters, gone. Right? And then, Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave, he's taken away. In all of that, Job did not curse God, lost everything. Possessions and family, gone. Satan comes back. Ah, God, God says to him, have you seen Job? You incited me against him. Notice how, how God says, you, Satan, incited me to put my hand against him. When it was Satan who had orchestrated those things. But ultimately it was God. Ah, but just let me touch his life. Let, me, let my hand be upon him and we'll see then, God. Okay? You can touch his life, but you can't take his life. And how he, how he just ruined the health of Job, right? So much so that even his three friends, when they came, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zohar, when they came to look upon him, they stood at a distance and wept because he was just a wreck of a man. And they sat in silence with him because they saw that his pain, his sorrow was so great. And yet, Job is in the hands of a good God, isn't he? Who allows Satan to do what he wills, but really it's God who's doing it to Job, because God knows Job. And God has lessons for Job, right? It takes you 41 cha 42 chapters to get to the end to discover what, what Job actually finally says. Now I understand. Now I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now I keep my hand on my mouth and say nothing against you, Lord, because now my eyes have seen you. Now I know who you are. You see, God can bring you to nothing to show you who he is. He can take away everything to see whether you, do you love me? Do you belong to me? Do you want me? More than all those things. Isn't that what Jesus said the cost of discipleship is? If you love mother, father, children more than me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. That's unbelievable. That's what it means to pick up the cross and to follow Jesus, right? God's people are only safe because of Jesus as their Redeemer. Jesus took our punishment, died our death, and in so doing, he secures the forgiveness of God for us. Disaster is averted because of Christ. The disaster of hell and the second death because of Jesus. Thirdly, that's theologically, thirdly, biblically, okay. God is always good. He cannot be otherwise. It's always good. Cannot be otherwise. There is none good but God, right? So Stephen Charnock, the good Puritan, he says, any good that exists is derived from the goodness of God. If you ever get the chance to read The Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock, he's got a long section on the goodness of God. It's the best section in the whole book. He talks about the knowledge of God, the love of God, and so on. The goodness of God. God is originally good. God is infinitely good. God is perfectly good. God is immutably good. God is always good, only good. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And that's how God shows himself always to us. Goodness is the choice perfection of the nature and the character of God. And it shines brilliantly like the most brilliant star. 
If you get up early in the morning, you'll notice Jupiter is out there now. It used to be out here, but now it's out there in the west. Shines! You just can't miss it, right? That's the goodness of God. You just can't, you can't miss it. You see it clearly, right? By God's goodness, you enjoy all things. Family, homes, possessions, clothes, food. You enjoy them by the good hand of a God, good God upon you. And from His goodness comes good to the people of God in your daily life, with all of its twists and turns, with all of its ups and downs, in all of those things, God's goodness shines upon us. In all of your trials, in all of your sorrows, in all of your afflictions, in all of your hardships in life, we all have them. God's goodness is the same. It can be counted on. So in all disasters of life, God remains the same. Unchangeable, immutable, and good to His people. You know, we will usually trust somebody if we perceive that they're trustworthy, right? Well, how do you perceive God? Why is it that so many people question God? We all do it. But there's sometimes Christians that just go on and on about questioning God instead of believing what God says about Himself and about them in relationship to Him. I mean, think of your Bible. Your Bible is a testimony from Genesis to Revelation of the character and nature of God on your behalf your redemption, your salvation. We have many things to be thankful for, don't we? Especially our salvation and all of the benefits that accrue to us from the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I say disasters are providential. All of them. So even the good, even the bad, all of things in life are providential. Coming to us because of the decrees of God, coming to us because of God's providence in our lives. When you begin to live like this, then you lift up your eyes and see God. You look and you live like that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for these truths that we find so relevant and so pertinent to each of us. We pray that each of us might live in fellowship with you, Father, knowing that you shall bring things into our lives that are always ordained by you for our good. Help us and forgive us if we see them as evil. Let us see that you are in everything, working good for those who love you. Teach us these things, we pray. Thank you for our study in the book of Esther. Thank you for these truths. Now we thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given to us. What a, what a blessing it has been to us. What a privilege to worship as God's people. Now we pray that you'd send us forth into the world, back to work, whatever our occupations might be, that we might labor for your glory and live for your glory. Help us to lift up our eyes and see Jesus and to see Jesus alone. And so thank you for these things. Thank you for each other. Thank you for your love for us, your grace to us. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Now we commend ourselves to you and ask for your rich blessing upon us as we go our separate ways to God Alone be all the glory and all the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.